You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might, not de- he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. There's a story from Aesop's fables of a wagoneer who was driving a heavy load along a muddy road. And he came to a portion in the road where his wheels began to sink into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper the wheels sank. So the wagoneer threw down his whip. He knelt down and he prayed to Hercules the Strong. The story goes that miraculously Hercules appears to him. But he tells him, get up. Put your shoulder to the wheel. And maybe you'll recognize this line. The gods help those who help themselves. By the way, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) That's from Aesop's fables. The dilemma that Hebrews 2 describes is that humanity has fallen from our intended place. We have descended into the mud, so to speak. From being called to rule and reign, crowned with glory and honor, as we see in this previous passage, to now is described living in lifelong slavery. Humanity isn't ruling. We are being ruled. Bound by the powers of sin, death, and the devil. Stuck. And not able to free ourselves. The more that we struggle, the more that we resist In our own strength, the more that we try to fight and to rise above in our own human ingenuity, the deeper that we sink. And so the hope is not that the gods help those who help themselves. The hope of the book of Hebrews is that God helps those who simply cannot help themselves who humbly recognize and realize that they don't have what it takes to break free. For those that realize that no matter how successful they become, how rich they become, how much they accomplish in their lives, how beautiful they are, how fit their bodies are, how comfortable their life is, fear still haunts them. And destructive habits still grip them. And death for every single person 
still looms over their life. Rescue comes to those who are helpless. There's a repeated word in this passage, help. And I think it's going to be lost on us in our English language because for many of us, help is sort of a trivial thing. Help could be as something as simple as like, I got lost and I, you helped me find my way. You gave me some directions. Or I'm carrying something heavy and you help by carrying the other corner of that piece of furniture or whatever it is. Or, you know, I needed a solid favor, so you came along and helped. And not to diminish this help. But what we do is we often import our ideas of help onto God. Well, I lift a corner and God lifts a corner, of course. And once in a while I get lost, but, you know, God will show me the way. The Christian life is about God doing us some solid favors along the way. God helps. But the word here for help actually means to lay hold of something. It means to grip it, to seize within your hands. It means to rescue someone or something from peril, to take hold, to apprehend. And so the image is that Jesus stoops to the lowest depths of our human experience, into the depths of our sin, into the depths of our fears and our temptations, and even death itself to take hold of his people, grasping us and not letting us go, and lifting us up out of it, breaking us free, and raising us to our intended place. As we read here in verse 10, bringing many sons and daughters... To glory. This is not a trivial help. This is a significant victorious help. So the passage that we're looking at today tells us how Jesus did it. How Jesus did help us. How he has made us, uh, made for us a way where there was no way to truly live and one day reign again with him. And it all hinges on this. So here is the main idea to what I would describe again like last week as a complicated passage. Here's the main idea. Jesus helps us by becoming like us. Jesus helps us by becoming like us. When you're going through something really difficult, really hard, one of the most unhelpful things for people to say is I know exactly what you're going through. It's well-meaning, but it's not all that helpful because the reality is they don't. And even if they've experienced something similar to what you've gone through, they haven't experienced what you have experienced. They haven't walked in your shoes. They haven't lived your life. They haven't seen or felt or processed or lived what you've lived through. And yet what Hebrews shows us is that there is one who does know. Not just theoretically, not just as an aloof divine observer or some all-seeing eye over the universe, but someone who experientially knows, who has been there. I know exactly what you're going through. And who can say it with absolute integrity and truthfulness. Verse 12 through 13. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children that God has given 
me. So what the author is doing here is something very significant. He's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. This is what the author of Hebrews is going to do over and over and over again. He's going to quote Old Testament scripture and then show us how it all points to Jesus. In fact, he situates Christ back in this scene that's recorded in the, in the Psalms. And he says, there's Jesus in the midst of the people. There's Jesus with his people, not just tolerating our presence, but he is him who calls us his brothers. He is one with us. Jesus is among his people. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in what? Every respect every respect. So Hebrews 2 shows us that there are four important things that Jesus shares with us if you're taking notes. And the first thing is this, Jesus shares in our humanity. Jesus shares in our humanity. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to convince people that Jesus is God for good reason. But I think that we forget that it is equally true that Jesus is also human. Jesus is fully human. And this is important because Jesus could only help humanity if he became exactly like us in every regard. One of the limitations that I face and I've identified in my life is a lack of experience. And I don't just mean a lack of years of experience. I mean a lack of unique experiences, hearing people's stories, coming alongside people to care for people who have very particular stories that come from very uh, you know, specific upbringings or very specific cultural backgrounds or very specific perspectives on life. And, I, and, I, and as much as I love and I care for and I try to sympathize and be present with people, there are times where I'm just like, I don't know what you're going through. I just don't. But we're told here we have a faithful high priest. And we'll explain a little bit more about that in the Advent season. But suffice it to say here, we have a faithful high priest, a minister who does know. Who does know. Dorothy Sayers once said, he, speaking of Jesus, has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work, and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. So think with me. Think about all the things that come with being uniquely you. And think specifically about the challenging things that come with being you. The aches and the pains and the sorrow and the stories that you steward and the feelings, and the difficult relationships, and the wounds, and the hungers, and the thirsts, and the fatigue, and the weakness, and the limits, all the things about your life that you wish you could do without. He knows them all. He's been there. He's done that. And because Jesus has been there, and he has done that, he has immense compassion on our humanity. Jesus does not resent our humanity in any way. Why? Because he himself is human. 
God would never say, gosh, those silly humans, why? Because God himself in the person of Jesus is human. He's speaking of his own kind. He doesn't resent his own, he doesn't resent humanity because Christ himself is human. So I have found that I spend a lot of uh, time trying to convince people that God is happy with us being human. And you've probably been able to identify it a lot in my sermons lately. Because of how much time I'm spending trying to convince people God wants you to be human. He's never wanted you to be anything but human. Verse 17, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. People. Humans. We may resent the things that come with being human, but God does not. Human is exactly who he has intended you to be, and human is exactly what he sent his son Jesus to restore you to become. Human. Nothing less, nothing more. The gospel isn't about helping us overcome our humanity or to rise above our humanity. The gospel is about empowering us to overcome the things that strip us of our humanity. Sin, Satan, fear, shame, isolation, and ultimately death. All the things that seek to dehumanize us. The gospel is about being fully alive again, fully human again, fully you again. Far from resenting our humanity, God willingly entered into it in the person of Jesus. He shared the worst parts of our human experience. Why? So that he could share with us the best parts of his human experience. He shares in our humanity. Secondly, he shares in our suffering. Look with me again in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. So Jesus is described here as the pioneer of our salvation who blazes the trail before us. He's also described here as the faithful high priest who ministers to us in our weakness. And this tension in these pictures is beautiful. He's our fierce pioneer of salvation, and yet he is our caring, faithful high priest, which means that he is both glorious and he's gentle, that he's strong, and he's also sympathetic. And this Jesus reigns in triumph but he's also extremely tender towards our every need. And what qualified him for this very unique role was his suffering. Now, Jesus being made perfect through suffering is not a moral thing. We're not talking about sins. In regards to sin, Jesus has never sinned. Jesus is always morally perfect. There was no room for improvement when it came to being sinless. Being made perfect had to do with completion, fulfillment. Imagine a glass being filled to the brim. Jesus 
fulfilled all of God's purposes. Jesus fulfilled all that was expected of him. Jesus completed the task. Every ounce that was required of him, Jesus fulfilled. He experienced everything that he was intended to experience, and it all centered on suffering. Think about all the ways that we as humans instinctually avoid suffering. Pain is the response of nerves sending a signal to your brain telling you you're maybe in a situation that you ought not to be in. You're moving in the wrong direction. You accidentally touch something hot. What happens? You jolt backwards. It's your body saying, get away from danger. Or you, you touch something sharp. You jolt away from it. That is danger. That, that poses a risk to my life. Or like when my friend, Pastor Matt Bogus, sees a spider. He jumps in the opposite direction as if his life will end, despite statistics telling him it won't. The heat, the sting, the fright, it is all about preserving our lives. It's all about survival. Humans naturally seek to avoid suffering. And think about it, most everything in our life is seeking to avoid suffering. A softer pillow. High-density uh, thread sheets, right? A little bit more comfortable ride in that car. Something that goes a little bit faster or internet that's quicker. Or it, it's all to avoid that sense of suffering, to take away and mitigate pain in our lives. But Jesus, because of his deep love for us, when we pull away from suffering, Jesus, because of his deep love for us, intentionally moved toward it. He enters into it. In fact, verse 10 says something very unique here. It says, it was fitting that Jesus would suffer. Fitting. You remember those kids' toys for toddlers? Maybe they still make these where it's like a kind of a basket thing with different shapes like circles and squares and stars. And then children have to figure out how to fit the corresponding shape into the right hole. You can't put a square peg into a round hole because it doesn't fit into that pattern. Hebrews shows us that the only appropriate shape that fits into God's design for our rescue, the only appropriate shape that fits into God's role for the Messiah is a cross. The shape of God's love is not in the shape of a heart. The shape of God's love is in the shape of a cross. The shape of God's glory is not in the shape of a crown. The shape of God's glory is, most, is seen most clearly in the shape of a cross. The shape of freedom is not a shapeless shape with no boundaries or lines. The shape of freedom is in the shape of a cross. The word is cruciform. And we ought to get to know this word. Because if you don't understand this shape, if you don't understand the concept behind this word, cruciform, you will not understand Jesus at all. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, Jesus discovers these two disciples on a road to Emmaus on the day of his resurrection. 
they realize that he is crucified and they think it is all over. All our hopes dashed to pieces and now they're moving away from Christ and they're moving away from the empty tomb and they're moving away from everything that they have learned in their discipleship process with Jesus. And Jesus comes to them and what Jesus does is he identifies the root cause of them giving up which is extremely important to the topic of Hebrews because the people of Hebrews were right on the brink of giving up as well. And Jesus identifies why they are moving in the wrong direction, why they are giving up based on what they've seen and experienced in Jerusalem. It was because they failed to understand that the Christ must suffer and then enter into glory. It was Jesus essentially saying there is no place for suffering in your Christianity. No, ma no wonder why you're walking in the opposite direction. No wonder why you're giving up. There is no place for suffering in your Christianity. And I think that's a word for us today as well. No wonder why you're tempted to walk away. There's no place for suffering in your Christianity. And you won't understand how you fit into God's kingdom and how you fit into God's design as well. You will always find yourself at odds with the way of the kingdom. You will always feel like, I just don't fit in here. This happens if you value comfort over conformity to Christ. This will always happen when you avoid pain and challenge and in times of challenge you think that God is abandoning you. Or anytime the heat is turned up in your life or in your relationships, you think something's gone wrong. This isn't right. This wasn't what I was promised. Something's gone wrong here. If you flee from difficult conversations or you avoid truth that hurts or you're constantly triggered by anything that brings pain in your life. See, a lot of us want to fit into God's design, but we want to fit into God's design and we want to fit into God's family and we want to fit into what God is doing in the world, but without the cross shaping our lives as well. Unwilling to conform to the way of Jesus. But what we have to remember is this. As Anne Voskamp put it, spiritual formation is ultimately cruciformation. What is God making me into? to someone who reflects the way of the crucified Christ. The cross is and will always be the shape of Christian discipleship. The cross is the way that we grow. It's the way that we become the people that we're intended to become. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Mark, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross and follow me. The path to glory goes directly through suffering for Jesus and for his people. And we, like Jesus, become qualified for our place in glory through suffering. We complete the journey to our heavenly splendor by passing through the fires of affliction. Jesus willingly experienced our suffering, but we must also willingly share in his as well. Thirdly, Jesus shares in our temptation. 
A few years ago, I was teaching through one of the Gospels, I believe it was the Gospel of Mark, teaching about Jesus' temptation. A couple was visiting that Sunday, well-meaning, um, and the husband came up to me after the service and said, you know, I have a problem with what you, you were talking about. And what he shared was that he was very upset that I would state that Jesus was tempted. He, he just couldn't imagine that the perfect son of God, the sinless son of God, would be tempted as if it was beneath him. Well-meaning, but totally misdirected because the scriptures are very clear. Jesus was tempted. Look at me again in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet here's the difference. He is without sin. So Jesus was tempted, but without sin. And so to fully share in our humanity meant that Jesus would share in our experience of temptation. We read in Luke 4 and in Mark 4 that Jesus faced the devil himself in the wilderness for 40 days as he was tempted. He resisted the temptations toward worldly power and towards compromise. He resisted the temptations toward sinful pleasure and worldly ease. But listen, Jesus was tempted, and we cannot sanitize this. We can't act like the world that Jesus lived in in the first century was some sort of isolated bubble where sin didn't exist, where sin wasn't around every corner like it is for us today. No, he faced the same temptations that we face. He faced the temptations that we would wholeheartedly admit we face, and he even faced the temptations that we'd be embarrassed to admit that we face as well. Jesus faced them, and yet he endured. Now, why is this important? Well, as one early church theologian from the fourth century put it, what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed, which means if there was something that Jesus was unwilling to experience in his life, something too beneath him, too human, for him to experience, then we would be without hope of ever finding healing in that area. If there was ever a place in our lives where Jesus is like, I can't touch that, I can't go there, then there would never be hope for that area of our life to ever be restored again. What Jesus has not assumed, he is not healed. And so he had to experience even the most challenging and embarrassing temptations that we face in order to arise victorious over them so that he could help us as we pass through them as well. He shared in our temptations, why? So that we could share in his victory. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. Can we get those fans on? I, I wore a sweatshirt today thinking it was going to be cold, and it's warm in here, isn't it? I, I, I do this, like I'll reach a point of discomfort and I'm like, why am I so miserable? Why am I so miserable? And I'm like, oh, it's because it's blazing hot in here. Thanks, guys. Let me read verse 18. You guys still with me? Okay, let me read verse 18 again. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in and of ourselves, we are powerless to resist temptation. 
Nothing is more frustrating, nothing is more discouraging than trying to overcome temptation in our own strength, in our own grit, in our own determination. That's why you'll probably meet a lot of people who, yep, there's the fans, all right, everyone get their look, look at them now, okay, that's them, fans, ask me later about the brand of those fans, I'll tell you later, and then let's bring it back down now. That's why I think we meet a lot of Christians who claim to be Christians, but are really gloomy. And are always miserable and always look exhausted. And it's like, clearly the joy of the Lord is not in your experience. They're coming on strong now. Maybe in the middle. It's <laughs> I, know, I know, I take full blame. This is not a people own the mezzanine problem. This is me. Welcome to my life. Let's just start the sermon over. What do you think? <laughs> People are miserable because they know enough about the Bible to want to avoid sin. But not enough about the gospel to admit that they're incapable of doing that. Not humble enough to recognize how needy they are and how much they need the empowering grace of God. Because of Jesus, because he resisted, he strengthens us to resist our temptation as well. So yes, we're human, you're human. And yes, we have flaws. And yes, this side of glory, we sin. But because of Jesus, we are not powerless in the face of our temptations. We are being helped. We are being empowered by the very resurrected Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can say no to things that bring death and yes to things that bring life. You are not doomed to give in. You are not doomed to succumb to temptation. Hebrews tells us you are destined to resist and you are destined to overcome in the power of Christ. Fourth, Jesus shares in our death. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, that's where we say amen, okay, okay. and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17, therefore he has had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what one theologian from the past called the death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus put death to death through his own death. The only way to empty the grave of its power was by entering into it. By entering into the belly of the beast and slaying it from within. But here's the problem. The problem is that no human had ever entered in and come back alive. You may skirt death, like maybe even some of the old myths like Sisyphus. You may even cheat death. Like some people we know, you may even flatline and then the clear and you come back from death. But death is an enemy that eventually is going to win over every single one of us. That is until Jesus came. 
Jesus died. He was buried. He raised, rose again on the third day victoriously in order to liberate his people from death's grip. There's a beautiful scene in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. The apostle John is on the island of Patmos worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. And he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus and he is so overwhelmed that he falls to the ground. And we're told in Revelation 1, but he, speaking of Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So my translation, I didn't just come back again. I came back with the keys, baby. I came back with the keys of hell. Now, there are many things that the cross of Christ have accomplished for us. Three things are mentioned here in Hebrews. As Jesus shared in our death, he defeated the devil. He delivered us from slavery to fear of death, and he absorbed the wrath and punishment reserved for us. That word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's just anger. So how does Jesus' death defeat the devil and his grip on us? Well, John Owen, who I spoke of earlier, said this. All Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. But if the obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. So how does Jesus defeat the devil? By disarming him completely. What does the devil do? Well, his name, Satan, it means accuser. The devil accuses. And what's his power? The messed up things you do. The sins you commit. And me, once in a while. Mostly the sins you commit. <laughs> so that's the picture we have of the accuser. He's standing before God saying, look at them, God. Look at them. Look at their sin. Look at how they denied your word. According to your commands, God, the wages of sin is death. If you are going to remain just, they have to die. That's Satan's power. It's God's word. It's God's law. And like a prosecutor, he accuses, and when he accuses, he appeals to the law. God's law. Which means that the work of Jesus Christ to rescue sinners would have to abide by that same law as well. That's what makes the gospel so amazing. When Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, he took upon himself the punishment of our sin. He absorbed the wrath and judgment that, of God that was reserved for us, which did two things. It satisfied God's justice, and it disarmed the accuser entirely. And as he defeated death and the devil, he liberated us from fear of death. Now, this isn't to say that death isn't real or death is some sort of an illusion. It is real, and it's painful, and it sucks, and it touches us all. However, what is being said here is that death has lost its power. And now, for those who are in Christ through faith, something glorious awaits beyond the grave. 2 Corinthians says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. 
But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. Did you catch that line there? Swallowed up by life. Today, here in our world, all we know is the opposite. Death consumes everything. Cancer spreads. Diseases consume. Viruses devastate. Sharks bite. Cars collide. Floodwaters cover people. Wars devastate. Death is a monster. A monster that gobbles everything in its tracks. But in eternity, in the new heavens and in the new earth with God in heaven, the opposite is true. Life consumes. We are gobbled up by life. We are consumed by life. We are engulfed by the life of Christ. On earth, every day, we are slowly dying. But in heaven, every single day, we are becoming more and more alive. So the more that we put our confidence and trust in this life, the more that we put our eggs in this basket, the more that we're going to be gripped by fear of death. We're going to be terrified of dying because this is it. But the more that we put our confidence in Christ, the more free we're going to live today. And the more that we will be able to face even our own grave with hope and confidence. I've got to conclude with one final brief point, and it's this. Jesus then shares his life with us. We've talked all about the things of our lives that he shares in, but finally Jesus shares his life with us. John Stott once said that Christ came not only to share our humanity, but to transform it. This is what's meant behind the word in verse 11, sanctified. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So when we trust in Christ, we are justified once and for all. Justification means that we are declared righteous now and forever before God on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Approved and accepted, not based on what we have done, but based on what Jesus has done. Justified forever. From the day we are justified, we then begin a process called sanctification, which is then the process of us becoming what is already true of us. Declared righteous in eternity, now through the power of the Holy Spirit, being made righteous. Set apart to God forever, now being set apart through sanctification. Beginning to be shaped into the image of Jesus day after day. A lot of folks talk about being in shape. I gotta get in shape. I gotta stay in shape. I can't have that dessert. I'm trying, I'm trying to get in shape. Uh, for goodness sakes, I mean, we live in the Central Valley. There's an entire fitness enterprise called In Shape, which at one point had the tallest building in our city. It's something that we value. But there is an in shapeness that is of more value. And I'm telling you right now, should matter more to you than the physical. And it's the pursuit of Christ-like character. The 
becoming more and more like Jesus, sharing in his nature, taking on the shape of Christ, beginning to enjoy what Jesus enjoys. I'm seeing people getting cold now. Oh my gosh, we can't win. Let's just leave them on. We're going to power through, (laughs) beginning to desire what Jesus desires. And this involves what we must do, and it involves what we must not do. Anyone who's ever tried, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, to get in shape knows that there are things that you must do and there are things that you must deny that feel like it's taking your life away. It feels like death. I just want bread. Life. Bread is life. Or the pain of exercise or whatever it is. It just feels like you're actually being stripped of life when in reality it's increasing your life. And the same is true of sanctification. The more that you pursue sanctification, the more that you will find yourself becoming more and more like Jesus. And the more and more you become like Jesus, the more and more you'll realize you're increasing in life. God is not taking away life from you. He is adding value to it. This is the way that Jesus is bringing us into what we're destined to to be. This is the way that Jesus is preparing us this very day to rule and reign with him in eternity. And so my question for you is this. Will you embrace this path by faith? Will you devote yourself to the life that he brings? Some questions to ponder as we go into our time of response. What fears have you allowed to grip you? What fears are you allowing to enslave you? What fears are you allowing to direct your life? You who've been called to rule and reign, what are you allowing to rule you that needs to be submitted to Christ so that you find freedom today? Also, what shapes have your Christianity taken on? Is your Christianity taking on the shape of activism? Is your Christianity taking on the shape of moralism? Is your Christianity taking on the shape of patriotism? Or is your Christianity being shaped by the cross of Christ? And then finally, what kind of in-shapeness are you spending the majority of your time on? The physical or the spiritual? What your life looks like on the outside? What people think of you? What people see of you? or what is eternally true of you through faith in Jesus Christ? What kind of in-shapeness will you pursue this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...